I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys answer questions from audience members live at the Retail Industry Leaders Association Supply Chain Conference in Dallas, Texas. Let's, with the time that we have left, why don't we go ahead and check out what kind of questions the audience has here. So the top question here is, uh, which countries are seeing a significant increase in foreign direct investment as a result of firms moving out of China? And I think we're seeing a lot of that happening in the context of global trade, advancement of other developing countries. Uh, I think that there is a strong question about why companies are moving out of China, but where are some of the other places that people are going and who's benefiting from this foreign direct investment? Big winner is Vietnam. Yes, supply chains are idiosyncratic, so it it depends on the product. And overall, cross-border capital flows are down versus 2007. With the peak trade, by the way, peak trade global output, trade as a share of global output, peaked in 2007. It has not returned to those levels. It's about five points below it. Uh, and the capital flows would indicate it's not going to recover anytime soon. Vietnam in the near term is the one place that looks to have potential for assembly of scale, which is why everybody went to China, was the scale part. Now, several things are happening here, and it gets really complicated before the sur- below the surface. Uh, the uh, goods are becoming more, in- more intangibles. Okay, so the, the, the labor co- content of goods is probably shrinking overall. Branding and apps and those kinds of things are more important in, the, in, in goods themselves as they're delivered. Second, labor costs went up in China and have been going up steadily because of really demographics, and that's, that's going, not going to change. But, but Vietnam is sort of the near-term big winner. Overall, supply chains are getting more regional, less long-haul global uh, because of things like intangibles and, uh, and, and the risk and, uh, associated with, uh, with long distance. You can see it in the data, I think, as I recall, we had a session on this last week. Our bilateral deficit with Vietnam went up 41% last year. I think um, that makes Vietnam feel like there's a target on their back. Uh, yes, they, well, and, and they're the right about that. They, they, they would not be wrong. It, it, it's only a matter of time. Uh, and they have, it's interesting because they're running into infrastructure problems. Yes. Uh, power constraints, uh, fuel constraints, uh, uh, roads, uh, they need a lot more infrastructure that, to support the, the inbound investment, which is causing then countries to have, uh, companies to have second thoughts. Uh, I think over time, uh, Mexico will be a, a winner because of the regionalization yes. trend that uh, preceded right. the coronavirus and really has yes. been going on, uh, on anyway. Um, our colleague at CSIS, Scott Kennedy, who looks at uh, the China market closely, thinks that, that um, companies in China, basically to supply the U.S. market, um, will end up moving uh, or moving that part of their supply chain out for various reasons, including the tariffs. Co- companies that are in China to service the Chinese market uh, and also the Asian market will probably stay there uh, unless there are internal conditions in China that, that prompt them to move. It, well, they won't move because of the tariffs, because the tariffs don't affect them. So it's going to be a mixed bag depending upon uh, your, your business model and depending on why you're there. I imagine the complexities of breaking up some of these supply chains where you're producing one product for the globe may be in this regional perspective, uh, breaking that up and making sort of products local for local as a result of that. Yes, and this is the light switch phenomenon that, right. that Scott has talked about. 
uh, and we've talked about it on the podcast, I think the administration sometimes tends to assume what, what you all know, know better about, which is they tend to assume this is easy. You know, we just turn off the lights in, in Wuhan and next Lift week we- Lift the factory up from China and yeah. move it. And we no move problem. it to Hanoi have it, in two have weeks. Have it done by Monday. And, and everything's do. fine. <laughs> we can build a hospital in two weeks. We can easily build a factory that manufactures exactly. things. But I mean, we had when we were doing the, the rules of origins auto study. Yeah. One of the major auto companies told us that it took takes them seven years to certify a new supplier. Uh, I mean, these are parts that have to be. You know, they're, they're subject to safety regulations. They're subject. Their manufacturers subject right. to environmental regulations. Plus, there's all the internal requirements of of the of the manufacturer to make sure that they meet quality standards and so on and so forth. You can't just do the light switch, but yeah. we seem to be pursuing a government policy that assumes that. Great. So let's uh, look at the next question that the audience has asked. Uh, the top question, next top question is, how will Brexit affect UK companies in the long term? I think that now that we're in a scenario where the UK has effectively broken their relationship with the European Union, I think there's still a year of negotiations on what trade looks like between right. the two countries. I think that a lot of companies are trying to grapple with what does that mean for trade with the United States? Sure. Look, uh, I have a different answer whether it's we're talking economics or politics. I'm very bullish on the politics, all right, because I believe in democracies, people should rule. And I believe the people of the United Kingdom voted the way they voted because they wanted to rule. They wanted accountable government. And I, my personal belief and my experience is the European Union and the way it's managed is becoming less and less accountable to voters. So I think that was a driving force. I think it will create happiness to, to the extent of being happier with government. But I also believe in leadership, ultimately. Uh, Andrew Jackson famously said, one man with courage makes a majority. And so I think, I think Prime Minister Johnson has demonstrated that leadership. And if you look at the scale of his victory, I think politically there's something very exciting going on. Economically, it's going to be a mess, and I hope they muddle through. Look, they've, they've got, the, 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 the Brexit was finalized January 31st of this year, but they have 11 months to negotiate all the little wrinkles, and there are lots of them, because it, it, once you integrate uh, commercial activities, pulling them apart is non-trivial. Uh, now, I don't expect a big uh, economic downturn. I think all the bad news has been, has been already considered in the forecasting, but it's going to be quite complicated, and I don't expect them to spend a lot of time talking to the U.S. The thing I worry most about is the city of London, which is the financial center for Europe today, and the degree to which the way they negotiate with Europe uh, will continue that prominence uh, in, in the city of London. Lots, lots of things written in chalk at this point. I have to say, I kind of disagree with some of what Scott said. I, I think this is why we have the trade guys. They right. they don't necessarily we, always agree, but you go. We you don't get disagree good very often. I, I mean, I, I think they, the people voted for the way you said. I, I have to say, from my point of view, this was an epic mistake. Great Britain was an important part of the EU and influential member of the EU. Twenty years from now, they'll be a medium-sized country that nobody pays any attention to. They really have have given away their their political future, not just their economic future. Uh, and I think the negotiation, uh, I agree with Scott about the negotiation, is going to be extraordinarily complicated. And the United States is going to make it even more complicated right. because we're going to try to force them to choose which regulatory model they want to follow, ours or the Europeans. And uh, Who's going to win out? Watch the chickens. Well, Bill, you, Bill, oh. Bill always points out, <laughs> yes. watch Chlor the chickens. It's all to about the To give some chickens. context, it's about chlorinated chicken, right? And by the way, uh, Boris Johnson called uh, Jeremy Corbyn a chlorinated chicken in the houses of, House of Commons. And then everyone went, ooh. It was, it was an insult, believe me. 
they all started clucking. Now we're talking chicken jokes. Yeah. Great. We, we, yes, well, uh, you can call a foul ball if you want. <laughs> but, uh, the, we met with uh, one of our negotiators on this subject, who, and uh, he didn't bring it up, but he didn't slap it down either. One of the private sector companies that was in the room, uh, in the high-tech sector, brought up the idea of, it was classic, can't we have our cake and eat it too? Sure. Uh, and can't the UK have essentially a follow two sets of rules, and in this case the example was data, and follow GDPR, the, the EU's data privacy regulation, with respect to EU data, and we'll follow the U.S. model, whatever it ends up being, with respect to U.S. data. And people seemed to think that was a good idea. And I don't think that they had given much thought to the, whether that's even possible. I mean, the, the immediate question is, what would the EU say about that? But think it through, and you all have to deal with, with data. What do you do if you're, in London, if you're a bank in London and uh, one of your bank accounts is uh, a ba bank account by a, a, a Polish citizen who lives in England? who lives in London, uh, who owns that data? Uh, the UK will say the UK bank owns the data because it's in the UK. The EU is going to say Poland owns that, owns that data because he's a Polish citizen. Uh, that has to be negotiated. And multiply that by 300,000, yeah, uh, and you've got an enormous set of problems. The US is going to say, you know, you need to choose uh, and, you know, take our chickens as, <laughs> to begin with. And, and Prime Minister Johnson has, in, in, a, in classic Trump tr tradition, said two different things at two different times. One, we're not taking your chickens. And two, let's not get hysterical about American food. Uh, I'm not sure what the latter means, uh, because it leads me to say, take our chickens. Take we do chicken. not have people in the United States dying from poisoned chickens. I can say that with some confidence. There we go. We heard that directly from Bill Reich here at the Realist Supply Chain. Bill, there's a Bernie Sanders question that showed up on the screen here. You oh, good. I'm a, uh, really, what is it? I, uh, it is, uh, what, what about Sanders' policies if yeah. he wins? What is it going to mean I love for... to talk about this. My son is a big Bernie fan. It's interesting to me that if you look at both Sanders and Warren, their trade policy stems from the same place uh, that Trump, uh, Trump's policy stems from. First, uh, it's, it's a policy of blame. They just blame different people. Trump blames foreigners and immigrants. Uh, Bernie blames billionaires and uh, big large corporations. big corporations. Yeah. Now, that doesn't affect you guys unless there's some billionaires in the audience. Uh, in which case, come up and see us afterwards. Well, we'll there are, there are a few big corporations here, so let's, let's be clear. We're always happy to talk <laughs> about sponsorship of the Trade Guys podcast. But, uh, but it's a policy of blame in both cases. It's not your fault, it's their fault, and we're going to do something about it. And it's premised, again, on the same thing. People will pay for access to the American market. They will pay more than they're paying now, so we can, we can be the demandeur. The difference is in what we want them to pay. Trump wants them to pay by buying stuff. Right. Look at the China agreement. Bernie wants them to pay by signing all the ILO conventions, uh, honoring their Paris Agreement on Climate Change obligations, uh, agreeing, not to, uh, agreeing to respect human rights in a whole host of very specific areas, and doing a whole bunch of things that are basically in the progressive agenda of, of, of social uh, change. Uh, but the concept is the same. You know, and, I mean, what Senator Warren said is, we won't negotiate with you unless you've done all these things, which led one, the, the best joke of the campaign was what that would mean is the United States would not be able to negotiate with itself because we don't meet her standards. 
Uh, and we probably still wouldn't meet our standards even if she were president because it's, getting there is, is complicated. So in some senses, the policy is, the construct is the same. The attitude about foreigners is the same. Would anything actually change if he were elected? Let's take Bernie for an example. Uh, I, uh, probably, uh, there are two differences, I think. Um, one, I, well, there's one big difference. I think all the Democrats at heart are multilateralists. Uh, and Trump at heart is much more of a unilateralist and bilateralist. I think even Bernie would say we need to stay in the WTO. We need to work with our, you know, we need to work with our friends and allies, particularly dealing with China. We need to have a coalition, and this is what Trump has been, I think, correctly criticized for not doing that. This will be a Democratic theme from all of them, uh, and it'll be a theme in, in the uh, in the November election that we should be building coalitions. We should not be irritating our allies by slapping tariffs on them. We should be trying to build a common front. I think it's interesting, though, when you talk about how trade is such a low priority for voters out there, registered voters, polls at, you know, out of 12, it's 11, but the president is making trade his number one priority when he's talking about the economy. So yeah. how do Democrats not respond to that in a way that doesn't change the narrative? Well, you're right, they have to, and it, it just doesn't usually happen. It happened in 2016 because Trump made it an issue, and he'll make it an issue again, you're exactly right. The Democrats will be forced to respond. So far, they have two responses. One, he's doing it wrong, which allows them to avoid having to say what right would be. They can say, he's doing it wrong, he screwed up this, he screwed up this, he screwed up that. And two, he's not building coalitions. Uh, when there is a nominee, I think eventually they'll have to have a trade policy. But you're right, so far the critique is not on the policy. The policy is not being criticized, it's implementation. I think it's hard to criticize, though, that China has been a good actor in this space uh, because there are just that long list of problems. I, I want to make sure that we have time for one more question because we were running out of time here. But the top next question is, nationalism and isolation is isolationalism seems to be on the rise around the world, not just in the United States. So how will that affect global trade in the long term? Well, well look, the, the trends are already toward larger services markets and less goods trade. As I said, peak trade. But this administration very, doesn't necessarily calculate the, the trade deficit. They, they don't really care services. about that. Right. No. And, and look, uh, the, the na nationalism uh, has been rising lately, but it is not connected with people's consumption habits yet. That makes retailers here very happy, by the so, way. We're all happy about that. The, 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 the best news. Now, the, there, is, there has been a shift in the point of view on China, per se. China is no longer, nobody tells the soothing story on China anymore, that they'll be, they'll just be, if they, we just let them, they'll be like us. They won't. And the president has done, a, in fact, a fairly good job of sort of shifting the debate on that subject. However, the key for me is you look at where people are and where the age groups are. India has six times as many millennials as the United States does. And Indian millennials want the same thing American millennials want. They want experiences. They want to travel. They want to see the world. They've got, they've got, the, you know, they've got the Library of Congress in their pocket. They walk, they've grown up with, with iPhones. They want the world. They want to experience the world. Same in China. China has a very large cohort, about five times as many Chinese millennials as there are American millennials. And this is going to drive global consumption. And I think that's the way you get past the politics of isolationism, that, that it's actually, I, I'm, I'm quite confident the next generation who grew up with an integrated world, they grew up, you know, they have no memory of the Cold War. They have you know, many, there are voters this year who have no memory of the events of September 11, 2001, because they weren't born. These people are now voting. So, so that co the political cohort is changing in a way that favors 
the world being a place where I can experience more. So I, 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 I'm actually quite hopeful in that respect. That's a good place to end. I'd just say for, for Americans, the one statistic that I always remember is 95% of the world's consumers are outside the country. Uh, we're a slow growth economy. We're a mature economy. If we want to grow, we have to trade. We have to be out in the world. That's not going to change. It may become more complicated. It will probably become uh, regional, more regional as far as supply chains are concerned. But the outward looking uh, that Americans have to undertake is inevitable. So as the moderator, I get the privilege of the last question, and that is, how do you, what's your last best piece of advice for the retailers in the room here about how to prepare in this environment of election 2020? Have, uh, have plan A, plan B, and plan C. <laughs> Find time to tell your member of Congress or your senator what your life is actually like. They have no idea and as long as they have no idea, they'll assume they can flip the light switch, and that's okay. If it's not okay with you, help them understand your daily work, what you've been through in the last three years, and give them a little sobering experience. I mean, I really do believe in grassroots exposure. I believe that our lawmakers can be, but need to be responsive to your interests. You're the voters. You're the, you're the employers. You're the, you're the real constituents. Help them understand what your life's like and make them deal with that. And maybe we'll get fewer light switches flipped off. Great. Well, I want to thank Bill and Scott for being here today at the RELA Supply Chain Conference. Let's give them a round of applause. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.